My name is David, and this is The Big Shut-In. It is Sunday, November 15th, 2020, day 246 since my family and I began social distancing. And in the space since I last spoke with you all, quite a lot of things have happened. One very strange Halloween. And oh yeah, uh, an election. Perhaps you heard about it. An election that now it's clear was won handily by one Mr. Joseph R. Biden Jr. Despite what a shocking number of people around the country seem to think. Despite some really disturbing fantasies that they are holding on to with a surprising amount of tenacity and brio. And I wanted to talk about the election. I wanted to talk about what that day felt like and what it's felt like since. And the person I wanted to talk to about it is my very good friend, Daniel. He's been on the show before. He's a very intelligent man and a very keen and canny observer of politics. And it turns out he was doing something quite interesting actually, on the Saturday after the election, uh, a week ago, Saturday, when the race was officially called by all the major media outlets. He was attending a protest, and, and not just attending, but, but there in the role of an official observer to try and make sure that the police were fair and cool, let's say, in their dealing with the people who were marching. So that was interesting. But anyway, I always like talking to Daniel, and he's the first person I called after the last presidential election, which didn't go so well. And so he's the person I wanted to talk to to recap this one that seemingly went a little bit better. So anyway, here's Daniel. How you doing? I'm good, man. It's really interesting. So I'm using a separate monitor, and it's giving me myself over here and you in screen I should be looking at. So I'm going to look at that screen. I'm going to minimize myself because I, I know what I look like. You look good. Yeah, thank you, man. Is that a Navy? Is that a Navy sweatshirt? It is. It is my Navy sweatshirt and my Biden Harris hat. You're feeling very patriotic today. Yeah, I'm feeling I'm feeling uh feeling manifest. I'm feeling like my destiny is manifest. I feel it's not often you uh you shake your veteran tail feather. That's a that's a that's a good look for you, though. I I, I like it. Thanks, man. Yeah, I wore this to um, the rally that turned into a march that was uh, last Saturday, and I had actually gone there. It was a count the votes kind of protest, and I'd gone there as with the ACLU as a protest protest monitor. And it turned into essentially a victory celebration, which was one of the coolest things that I've ever experienced in my life. Where, like where was this? Down it, it in, was, in, uh, in, in Manhattan. Manhattan. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's amazing. Well, tell me about that. Why did you? How did you get involved in that? Well, uh, I was I was spurred into action uh, by Jenna, who had done uh, phone banking over the course of the past two or three months. 
And Jenna, realized, Jenna, you're a fiance, we should say. My fiance, Jenna North. Yeah, I, I realized that I would only lose votes for the Democrats if I was to phone bank. So I <laughs> thought, thought about what else I could do and realized that um, a lot of people were putting their uh, efforts towards winning the election, which I thought was very important. But then I anticipated that there would be some sort of Michigas after the election and wanted to be able to address that. And so I signed up with the ACLU to be a protest monitor, pardon me, with the NYCLU to be a protest monitor, where you essentially go out to protests and monitor the actions of the police to make sure they're being above board and keep the protests safe in that regard. Wow. First of all, I love it yeah. when you make, every time you make with the Yiddish, I make very, I get very happy. So thank you for that. <laughs> um, what have you? What did you see from the police on that day? Were they behaving themselves? Well, one of the things that the uh, leads mentioned to us is that there are strength in numbers, both the more protest monitors that are out and the bigger the movement, the harder it is for the folks that are acting on that behalf of the state to do anything to control it, which I think is an important lesson. It's a kind of object lesson in... Uh, how these movements work is that the bigger your numbers, the less you can be controlled. So it, when we went out, it was actually uh, pretty calm and peaceful. It was a peaceful day. I don't know if you were in town last Saturday, but it was uh, almost like VE day or VJ day after World War II, I'd imagine. But um, it was a nice day. But I'm, I'm definitely going to keep up with it. And uh, I'm in a couple groups where we sort of monitor different protest channels to see if there are any sort of on-the-street movements and then uh, head out and make sure everyone's being safe. So it's pretty cool. Tell me more about why why you feel that's necessary. Let's be explicit about that. Like, why did why do you yeah. think the police need monitoring? Well, I mean, I think the police need monitoring because they, when they aren't monitored, and even when they are, kill people. So that's that's the the fact there. But I I felt that I went and participated in several of the rallies after we spoke last time and around when we spoke the rallies that were happening around George Floyd's death and the Black Lives Matter movement that was happening and participated in those and felt great, but also felt like I wish that I could be doing more. And I don't really, I'm not at a point in my life where I can participate in more direct action that I would like to do. Uh, I'm not at a point in my life where I can organize as much as I think my skill set might lend myself to. So the thing that I could do is, you know, volunteer in a way that I'm, I'm using some of the skills I have about like understanding, organizing crowds and things like that and doing something to kind of keep people safe as they're exercising their rights. So that's, I, it, it felt like, you know, we're, we're not specifically participating in the protest, but we're keeping, you know, it, it safe and keeping it possible for people to protest, which is what I liked about it. How do you do? You announce yourself? Are you labeled? Are you? Yeah, do you have, have a, like a whole a, a vest here. on, or we do actually. If you can hang on for a second, I'll show yeah. you this. So there's a hat too. I won't go get the hat because it's uh, sitting in another room. But we have this vest that we put on, and basically announces us. Can you see that? I can. So for the for the listeners, we're 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 doing this over a Zoom video conference, and he's he's holding up. It's like a blue like. Uh, I don't know something that a parking attendant would wear or something, and it yeah, says uh, yeah, it yeah. says 
ACLU of New York protest monitor. Um, really? And then are you are you just recording or on your phone or like are you just keeping yeah, so an eyeballs? So the techniques are they tell you a few things to look out for uh, specific behavior that the police are engaged in in terms of do they have their clubs in their hands? Do they have a lot of flexi cuffs on them? Do they have different sort of crowd controlled devices like LRADs and things like that ready to what's, deploy? What's an LRAD? Uh, it is. It sounds essentially like a police siren, and they could also be used as a loudspeaker. But if they want, they can turn it to a certain frequency, and I, I might not be specifically quoting the tech correctly, but they can turn it to a certain frequency that either has a piercing noise that people can't stand or evacuates people's bowels. There's different sort of things that it can do. So Really? Yeah, yeah. It's an it's a interesting device. They have a supersonic poop ray? Yeah, yeah, exactly. The police, the New York City Police Department, has and is willing to deploy a supersonic make-you-poop ray. Okay, I want to make sure that I am disclaiming that this is my uninformed uh, understanding of the situation, and I'm not speaking on behalf of the NYCLU specifically, but they do have different sonic devices that are used for crowd control above and beyond just speaking commands. So, yes. I need to go process that information for a couple of years. So walk me through the day. So you, you go to this protest and then sort of how does yeah, it unfold yeah. and how does the news spread? Like what's what's going on? Yeah, I think in terms of context setting. So starting with I wanted to get more involved. I've been a member of the ACLU actually since 2016 after the last election. And so I get I'm sure if you're a member of any of those sort of groups, you get frequent emails uh with opportunities to do anything from donate money to donate time. This was under the category of donate time, heard about it, looked into it. I looked at this and being a poll monitor, decided uh, I applied for both, but I think they were full of poll monitors and the protest monitor was something that interested me. And so what I thought I would be doing was if there was a more direct, blatant and effective attempt by the current administration to stay in power, that there would have to be people out on the streets demonstrating against that. And my thought was I wanted to go and participate in helping to keep those people safe. Up until, you know, I guess Friday of last week, that was kind of the situation we were in. And so I had volunteered to go out on this uh, a certain rally on Saturday. And what happened on the way to getting ready and heading out the door at about 11.30 on Saturday, the news came through that Pennsylvania had actually flipped and gone for Biden. And everything went from being a uh, moment of protest and to being a moment of essentially celebration. So by the time I got to Lincoln Center, Columbus Circle was packed with people, you know, doing everything that you could imagine in terms of like chanting and and people with like different sort of like pickup bands playing music and, and vuvuzelas and whatever else. It was like pandemonium, lots of masks. I would say mask wearing was at 90, 95%. I still got a test uh, last Friday and this, this a couple of days ago, this last Friday and, and tested negative, which was great. But so we uh, marshaled up. It was uh, largely put together by SEIU, 32BJ, uh, a couple other unions. I think United Federation Teachers was out there. And they were the marshals. So they're the ones who are actually 
organizing the march itself. And so, of course, people, people come to us and ask us any sort of questions. We direct them towards the marshals. What we're doing is not actually participating in the march. We kind of walk alongside on the sidewalk, making sure that we're following all of the sort of letter of the law and just monitor the situation to see if the police are intervening with the people's right to protest in any sort of physical way, which they weren't, which was that's, great. That's amazing. Um, I mean, yeah, how do you awesome. feel? How are you feeling about the election? Um, I feel good about the result. I'm, I'm, I'm super happy that we, you know, democracy was under referendum and it passed its own test, which is great. We're going to have uh, four more years of a democracy, it seems like. But I'm also thinking that there's a lot more work to do. You know, this guy won, Trump won 71 million, 72 million, something like that. Votes somewhere up north of what he got last time. The way I was thinking of it was that essentially Biden had to fight tooth and nail to convince one in 20 people that he was, you know, he had to convince that extra little 5% that he got to vote for him over voting for Trump. And that's what it came down to. And that's crazy to me that a good and decent man like Joe Biden, I, I have a lot of like policy differences with him as, you know, me being just one individual, but I think he's a good person. Whereas I think Trump is the worst kind of scoundrel in the world. And 19 out of 20 people <laughs> voted for him versus uh, for Biden. So it's, it's uh, you know, scary. 19 out of 20 of the undecided voters or whatever. Or the yeah, of, of, Who's that yeah, 20? Yeah. I, I guess if you did the math, it would be 19 out of 40 and then 21 out of 40 voted for uh, Biden, Biden yeah. but still, that's 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 far too close. You know, what does that say? Is the thing that like makes me, you know, stay up at night that there are seventy million people who, after this year, saw fit to vote for Donald Trump. So, draw that line to me though about why a vote for Trump was a vote against democracy. I think he's given every bit of evidence that it's a vote against democracy. He came out and said it. Um, and uh, other you know, folks in the GOP said as much that democracy is not the paramount interest that they have, that they named any number of other things that they call personal liberties, which make no sense. So I, I, I feel like it was a very, in a very straightforward fashion, it was a referendum on democracy and on science and on truth. And all of those things barely got ahead of the finish line. They won by a nose. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with you. I mean, it's it's um it's distressing, right? I, I I and I don't know, this whole this whole process, this whole election cycle, endless, the whole Trump era for me sort of started with me thinking about how like how how low could we sink as a nation and then i came around to sort of wondering you know have we ever actually been any better than this <laughs> and yeah yeah it's it's a hell of a place to go when you start really down that with your brain you know yeah yeah it started with uh birtherism right so trump came out in the early teens or whatever we're calling the last decade or whenever that was. And I mean, I guess he came out in the aughts, the late 2000, aughts. Around 2007, the, right? Yeah. Whatever that, yeah. 
Yeah, and came out and said that Obama wasn't born in the country. He just basically made up a bunch of lies, you know. And I, so there were two groups of people who went after that, right? There were the people who were dumb enough to believe it. And then there were the people who didn't believe it, but it served some purpose for them. And those two groups of people were, there were enough of them that he won the presidency and cast us into this, you know, dystopian hellscape that we see ourselves in of boarded up stores and shutting down restaurants and a quarter of a million people dead and the NFL stadiums empty of fans and games played to laugh tracks. Children wearing surgical masks to go to school. <laughs> like, yeah, it's, we can, it's we, astonishing. And then after all of that, he did better in terms of raw vote count than he did last time. What's, I mean, what is the matter with these people? I, I've, I'm sitting here trying to, I've been trying to be sort of journalistic here up to this point, but I can't do it anymore in the conversation. Like, is what is space. wrong? <laughs> but I know it's my show. I can talk about whatever I want, but what, what is wrong with our country that people could, I literally cannot, he's a man without virtue, Donald Trump. He has no, there's nothing good about him at all. He's not. He's not smart. He's not kind. He's not successful. Actually, he's not. He couldn't landscape a lawn. He couldn't help you put a backyard pool together. He couldn't change a tire. He couldn't like. There's. There's. He couldn't even say thank you if you did one of those things for him or pay you. Yeah. Yeah. For services yeah. rendered, like I mean, he's he's been notorious here in New York for decades for being the guy who doesn't pay his bills, doesn't honor his yeah. contracts. I mean, he's just a shyster and and a and a jerk. So what? Why? If we can't talk people out of voting for that guy by more than you know forty nine and a half percent or fifty and a half percent, you know, have been talked out of voting for him. What can we? How do we? How are we going to do this, Dan? I I feel like the path forward is there's there's parallel paths forward. I think. One is people need to be better educated. I think that getting back to the point of our last conversation, I, I, I don't, and it, it might be a, a fault of terminology, but I'm going to use the terminology that we have. I think that white people don't understand how white supremacy holds them back. And I think that because of that, they see somebody who is a champion of that and see it as a chance for them to get ahead. Now, in addition to that sort of tract of needing to educate people, I think people need to have a greater path for hope because what the Republican Party sells in a large way is the idea that it is survival of the fittest, that there isn't enough to go around, so you have to scrape and scramble for it. But that's bullshit because the people at the top are hoarding so much of the, you know, treasure that comes out of the hard work of everyone and not to get like absolutely Marxist with it. But I think that could be a little bit more evenly distributed. I don't think like, you know, we necessarily 
all get one share, but I think it shouldn't be that some people get 10,000 shares and 10,000 people get no shares. Right. Yeah. So there's, there's people who are uneducated and then there's people who are hopeless. And I think if you put that group together, you get, you know, more than or nearly half the country, depending on which way the wind blows on election day. Well, and, and then this carefully propped up system that gives a lot more weight and power to the opinions of people who happen to live in parts of the country where people tend to be less educated and yeah. less hopeful. There's, there's a lot of talk about how the polls failed, but the polls are doing what the popular vote count does, right? Like, if you look at a national poll and you look at the popular vote, I bet they probably lined up pretty close. Maybe there's a couple points difference. Not enough that you would say that you could credibly say that the math was wrong in the polls. I think what we do is we look at the polls to tell us the wrong thing. The polls need to be weighted so that they reflect the system that we have. And the system that we have is the Electoral College. So I think whatever your lead is in the national poll, you got to cut that in half right off the bat. And then probably knock it down another few points for other factors in terms of voter suppression, in terms of whatever else that you know falls under those sort of categories. And then you end up with something that looks a lot like the result of this election, where it was, you know, Biden won by... 5 million popular votes and barely scraped by an electoral college or, you know, something to that effect. Well, he did okay. Once everything was counted, you know, 306 isn't bad. He did okay. But if you look at those margins that put him over the top in the states in the electoral college. Very thin. All of them were, you know, low six figures, high five figures. Yeah. So, I mean, what do you think of this last slog, the last, the, the Donald Trump's last stand of crying non-existent election fraud and refusing to give up his seat on the throne. Like, do you think, how do you think that's going to play out? I think that the left needs to pick and choose what things they engage in the fight with the right on. And what I mean is I think they focus on the wrong thing. They focus on the fireworks show and they miss the town trust getting robbed underneath that. And, and, and what I'm trying to say is, I think what they need to do is ignore the transition rigmarole and focus on the fact that the right is going to constantly campaign. And they very quickly transition from the presidency to understanding that they need to win these runoffs the Republicans are already beating the Democrats in terms of raising money in the Georgia runoffs. And I haven't heard yet about Joe Biden or Kamala Harris going to Georgia and helping in those runs. I think instead of focusing on the noise around how the transition is going to go in January, Trump's going to leave office. And in the meanwhile, Biden's team needs to do the best to take over the Oregon state and, and, and understand how to run the government. But a lot of them came from that. So I have confidence that they can do that. The most important thing is on the fifth, they need to win the Senate. They For can't sure. win one of those. They need to win both of them. And so they need to be going down there and doing that. And the right knows to do that. They're always in campaign mode. 
they're the whole reason they're drumming up all this gibberish is because it gives them something to fundraise around, which they're being yeah. successful at. So that's that's the the, the pivot point that the, the Democrats, for lack of a better vehicle, need to kind of shift and, and move into. Well, that's the lifelong frustration with being a Democrat, isn't it? Is that they seem to think that if they take the moral high ground, that people will just come to them. They and... seem to think that if they're in the majority, they can win, which is just not the system we have. So, well, right, but, but I mean, beyond that, like they need to be. I, I think the most amazing thing in 2016 was the phenomenon of people who voted for Obama and then voted for Trump, mm-hmm. and we need to go get those people. We need to really convince them that the democratic party is on their side. And I think it is. I mean, I think Joe Biden's policies are going to do a lot more for poor white people than Donald Trump's policies will, but they don't know that they don't think that they think that that's a lie, but that that's the work that has to happen. I think. There's something like getting back to the idea of hopelessness. And this is what made Obama's campaign, I think, work so well, is that he very blatantly sold the idea of hope. And if you look back to Clinton, when he ran, he also did the same thing, is that if you don't, what you have is everybody pitted against each other in this, you know, social Darwinism uh, octagon to fight for this scarce amount of resources against each other. And in that case, if it's going to be a fight, I'm sure everyone's like, well, I want the least amount of rules on what that fight is going to entail. But it doesn't have to be a fight. It shouldn't be. There's more than enough to go around. For sure. And there could be more. We could be more prosperous than we are. Yeah, exactly. And I think that like, if you made it so that the people at the lowest end of the spectrum had some hope and a real chance of getting ahead, not feeling like they were pitted against each other or or that there was some sort of other coming from over the border or the bad part of town to take what they have, that they would be able to do better and excel and move forward in life. And then there'd be more opportunity for everybody all the way up the chain. I think that, you know, the people at the top would also benefit from that. For sure. I tell you, politically, I think it's amazing, isn't it, that it's taken so many decades for the Democratic Party to realize that there are a hell of a lot of black people in Georgia. Yeah. I mean, that, that but, seemed like a shock to everyone. Like, but, but it's not just that. It's that those people are deprived the right to vote in a lot of different ways, right? Like there For sure. Oh, absolutely. That's what I'm that. saying. But, but, but motivating, mobilizing, you can win the South by making sure that minority communities can get to the polls and and know that you have their back or feel that that yeah. at least for that afternoon you i mean i don't know why they couldn't win alabama and mississippi and louisiana the same way there's a shit ton of black people there too you know i think because the the, the gop secretaries of state are doing a better job of uh well know, right exactly but the path is there if you fight that fight yeah. and win it the path is there i think I fully agree. I fully agree. And I, I, I think that that is a constant struggle. The thing that we need to do is not look at the latest news cycle and how Trump is owning the libs. We need to look at the fact that GOP woke up on Wednesday before they even knew that they lost 
and fought like they lost and have more money to fight this uh, runoff fight in Georgia. Like they're in a better position than the Democrats are, despite the fact that the Democrats won at the top of the ticket. Well, we can fix that. I mean, there's time. There's two months, yeah. you know, yeah. or a little less. But yeah, I mean, I'm just, I just, and this is, this is my, this is my whiteness speaking. I'm just tired of all of this. I just want it to be over. You know, people talk about my real liberal, my real lefty friends, you know, are, are like, you know, well, this is, we need to be fighting that, you know, Biden is not nearly progressive enough and he probably isn't, but, and honestly, I agree with all that, but I also just kind of want to not think about politics every day. I'm tired of this election. I, I, I would, I want to go back to the status quo of the Clinton. I know it's not right, but like the status quo of the Clinton era, I would go back to that. If, if I could push a button, I would be okay with that. I got to tell you, the, the, one of the tools that the right wing uses to win is fatigue. They, whether yeah. it's fatigue because you don't think you have a chance of getting ahead or fatigue because you feel like you've won something and you want to rest, they're not resting. They wake up on Sunday and do the same thing that they did all other days of the week. And My- we have to, if we want to get ahead, we got to do the same thing. We got to organize. We got to reach out and elevate voices that haven't been heard, whether it's in the, you know, LGBTQ community or whether it's black and brown people or whether it's women. We got to make sure those voices are amplified and we got to go out and, and hit the streets with or hit the virtual streets and phone bank with the same amount of enthusiasm that they do because they're fighting for their survival. That's something I, I don't take away from them. They have the Proud Boys out in the street because those people think that their way of life is going to end. And I hope they so. Think, yeah. Well, <laughs> I mean, the thing is, we got to fight like we're fighting for our survival because we are. I mean, literally, look at, look at how this year has gone, right? They would see us dead in the streets. I mean, speaking of dead in the streets, right? Like, these next couple of months in terms of coronavirus is looking really bleak, really bleak. There's going to be that death count is going to double in November, December, January, maybe triple. I don't know. It's going to go way up because it's all over, right? Like I was looking at stuff the other day, you know, people here in New York are panicking that the positive test rate is, you know, pushing 3%. And then I saw that in the Dakotas, it's like 60%. You know, I mean, it's shocking. Do you think that there's more that political will to continue to support the GOP and continue to carry water for people like Donald Trump is going to erode with that realization that they've been sold a bill of goods when it comes to COVID? No, I think that they've already shown that they are completely lacking in any even not just acumen, but like like base desire to fight this pandemic and still won like we said 70 billion votes and i think that now they're going to step away from this fight in any regard at all for the next couple months so you know we gotta fend for ourselves through the winter and it's going to be a hard rough winter because of that 
Like, I, sure. I don't think that there's gonna be anything that's going to happen at the top that's going to mitigate what's going to be happening on the ground this winter. Oh, I agree with that. I agree with that because Trump's not going to do it and Biden's not going to be in office yet. But I was just thinking politically, and it's gross to think politically when it comes to people dying. But I'm thinking about the runoff in Georgia, and I'm thinking about the midterms two years from now. Do you think that the real disaster that's going to happen over the holidays when it comes to COVID is going to change any hearts and minds? I fear not. I, I think people are, at this point at least, you know, when, when, when we were in the worst part of what we thought was the worst part of the Trump administration a couple of years ago, everyone was like, you know what, what will end up happening is there'll be some great disaster. Everyone will see the light. Well, we got the great disaster now and it's going to get worse. But I think now we're the, you know, the boiling frog and we're nearly at a rolling boil. So I don't know that there's anything that could happen short of this thing hitting some sort of, you know, power of 10 worse in which like things get overwhelmed and apart in a way that we don't want to ever see that would actually really switch people's heads against uh, these folks that uh, have been in power for the past few years. Like if it turns into the bubonic plague, then maybe. I mean, it's pretty far from that, but it's not. It's not that far. I mean, if we're talking about a half a million dead people, you know, I mean, that's that's a lot. That's a lot of people. It's a lot of bodies. Yeah. I mean, yeah. we're it's already like what is I mean, what's this I'm gonna get the statistic right, but it's like worse than all of the American soldiers lost in World War II, Korea and Vietnam combined or something like yeah. that. We've lost more people every already. War, every war since World War Two. I think is the oh um, so not counting World War Two, but Korea, Vietnam, Afghanistan, Iraq. But who knows? I think by you know Valentine's Day we might have passed that mark at the rate that we're going. But I I still don't necessarily. I mean he did he he outperformed himself in the places where the pandemic was is worst. And I I, I can't crack that. I can't <laughs> decipher what that what the implication there is. Except that I think those people are in need of more facts and in need of more hope. I think he, he thrives on people being hopeless and people being tired and people being dumb. <laughs> the same thing well, that's going to win them over. But that's the problem, right? This is the problem, right? It's like, you know, you talk to somebody and they're like, well, you just, you think you're smarter than we are. And I'm like, you voted for Donald Trump to be president. Yes. I think that's a terrible decision. I think that was a very unintelligent thing to do. But you can't you can't convince someone to change their mind working from the premise of I think you're an idiot. Like that's not a that's not a successful bargaining tactic. I, I, I think you're right. I think what we're going to have to do on the left, it, it, you and me are fairly left leaning, is get out of the paradigm of what we think motivates people politically and start thinking about what heals sick people. So like, you know, when people have a drug addiction, you don't shout at them about how stupid they are. That's not what cures them of their addiction. You put them into several steps of treatment. But isn't that what an intervention is? Is sitting, yeah, I mean, getting together in a room and, and saying, stop it. 
Don't do this anymore. That is yelling. Yeah, but those are those are not just focused on the mistakes that a person is making. It's it's telling them that they have other people around them that care for them and that there is a way out. You know, and I think that actually, I mean, you know, now I'm really truly spitballing, but I think that might be a thing. Maybe that's what these people need to hear. They need to be have an intervention in which they are show a better way of of living that there's something that isn't just this fucking darkness because if they think there's just darkness there will be just darkness as a black man yeah aren't you tired though of being told that you have to be kind to people who hate you i don't necessarily look at it like that what i think is i need to hold the door open for people who look like me who don't have a chance to hold the door open. And if that means that I have to go through some shit to keep the door open, then that's what I have to do. And if that shit is, you know, having to stand next to somebody who doesn't like me so that somebody else can get themselves together in a position that they can get through that door, then I want to be able to do that. So I would be remiss if I did not spend a moment on the fact that you are in a, in a small and now very illustrious club of people who share the exact ethnic heritage of one vice president-elect Kamala Harris. Yeah, that's crazy, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> is it, or is it like her people from like the same village as your mother or something? Or like the one next door or something? Yeah, so, so she is from her mother is from Tamil Nadu, which is the state on the southeastern coast of India. And her mother's family, I think, lived in a city that used to be called Madras and is now called Chennai, which is the same place where my mother's family lived for some period of time before my mother came here. So her mother and my mother, my mother's younger than her mother, but they're both uh, sort of from the same parts of the globe at uh, contemporaneous times. Yeah. Crazy. And then her father is black. Her father's from the Caribbean, I believe. And my dad's African-American. But yeah, it's a pretty uh, unique, specific mix that I think only exists in this country. Maybe in some format in the UK. How's that feel? It's pretty cool. It's pretty cool. I mean, I guess the thing is, like, I am constantly aware of my racial identity because I'm made constantly aware of it and have to be. I'm also made aware that I'm not very tall. So, you know, there's facts of life, which are things. In in as much as it could be like not being tall, you know, the color of my skin, I would be perfectly fine with that. But in as much as it's something that I have to, you know, fight to defend myself against the slings and arrows that are pointed at me, then I'm fine doing that too. But yeah, I think of myself as American. And I think of her as American. I think of all of us as Americans. So I think it's like awesome and a cool thing. And also... You know, I'm, I'm, I'm one of those people who's down to celebrate our differences because I think that celebrating them is a way of making them things that don't divide us, you know? My name is David Hoffman, and this is The Big Shut-In. I produce this show post-production by Garrett Tiedemann. It's a production of Race Car Radio. If you're enjoying this series, I'll also steer you to our new sister series. 
COVID University New York. In it, the very talented Shar Adams takes a comprehensive look at life under COVID by using the City University of New York, CUNY, as a microcosm. You can find it at racecarradio.com and wherever you get podcasts. If you have feedback for me or a story that you think might be a good fit for this show, please do reach out at thebigshutin at racecarradio.com. <laughs>